good stuff. Very good stuff. I <clears throat> hate to cut you off. A um, little bit of church politics for you. If you don't know what the inner workings of a church look like, there's a pecking order. And if you want to know if you're middle management at a church, you preach in the summer. If you want to know you're at the bottom of the list, you preach the last Sunday of spring break (laughs) and the Sunday in between Christmas and New Year's. Two very popular times for us young guys. Uh, I'm Ted Sin, and I just want to say thank you. Uh, I am so excited that we get to plant a church, a daughter church, out of this church. Uh, There's so much here that I love and that I would like to duplicate as we try and uh, take God's peace and His salvation and His Savior and His King and take Jesus to another part of this city. So a heartfelt thank you. Uh, My wife, uh, Tricia, um, is here. You've seen her, I'm sure. And then we have four little children. Uh, Maddie is five. Uh, Riley is uh, three, four next month. Braden's two. And uh, Gentry's 11 months. And people always, I'll just take care of it now. People always want to know, is there something philosophical about what you've done? Is there something theological about what you've done? And I would tell you, it's just sheer stupidity. (laughs) That is what we have done. I'm lying. For about 20 months now, one little word in the Scripture has captivated me. For about 20 months now, one little word in the Scriptures has caused me to meditate and to ponder and to memorize, and to search, and to even write a sermon. I want to introduce you to this one word, and I hope to push you down a journey, uh, very much like my own, because it's been so fruitful. I've even come up with a new spiritual discipline uh, that I want to introduce you to, uh, out of this one word. So before uh, I pray, I would invite you to turn to Luke chapter 22, and I'll start reading in verse 24. And I want to introduce you to my one word. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, we would love to see you in all your beauty. We want to love you for what you have done for us. We want to believe in you and the transformation that is ours because of your person and your work. And Jesus, we want to become you to this city. We want to become your hands and your feet. We want to become redemption. We want your grace and your mercy to flow through us to others. King of peace, come to us this morning and bring us peace. And take your peace through us to this world, we pray in your name. Amen. Luke chapter 22, starting in verse 24. A dispute also arose among them, speaking of the disciples. They were fighting as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. And Jesus said to them, The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors. But not so with you. Let the greatest among you become as the youngest. And the leader 
as the one who serves. My Christian ears started to buzz, and I thought I'd found a mistake in my new English Standard Version Bible 20 months ago. I was convinced that this word youngest was mistranslated. Because you see, in my Christian head, not in my heart, and certainly not in my life, but in my head, I've begun to understand that Jesus has this upside-down, inside-out ethic, that his kingdom is built on a different philosophy from the world. He values really the exact opposite of what the, the world values. So I'm used to this, the first will be last and the last will be first. And I'm used to, if you humble yourself, you'll be exalted. And if you exalt yourself, you'll be humbled. And I'm used to, if you want, let the greatest become the least. And I'm used to, as our passage says, the leader serves and the servant leads. But I was really caught off guard by, let the greatest among you become as the youngest. And so I went and found all the other translations of the scriptures in my house. And every one of them said youngest. And so I'd like to tell you that I went and got my Greek New Testament, but I did not. I opened up my computer and I looked and sure enough, this is a very faithful and good translation of the Greek word. And this one word, youngest, has sent me on a journey and I want to push you down this same journey today. My mind immediately, immediately went to Luke chapter 9 where we read this. Just listen. The disciples are fighting over who's the greatest. Sound familiar? Jesus took a child, an infant, a toddler, and put him by his side and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of God. And whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. I don't know, I'm not the greatest biblical scholar, but I cannot think of any other place where Jesus takes something and says, turn, a word for repent, and become like this. He says, consider the lilies. He says, consider the ravens, talking about God's provision. And if he takes care of the lilies and the ravens, surely he'll take care of you. But this is very wild for me, that he takes this infant, this toddler, and when the disciples are fighting over greatness, over significance, over value, he goes and he grabs an infant, a toddler. We don't know which, but it doesn't really matter. And he sets the child down by him and he says, I want you to watch this child. And where you don't find humility in yourself like the humility of this child, I want you to turn and repent. And I want you to become like this child. You see, I started to think about my life and I started to think about what I value and I started to think about the philosophy that governs my life and I began to realize that although my head knew this language of first, last, last, first, greatest, leadest, least, greatest, my heart and my life was full of the world's way of thinking. But Jesus says, not so with you. If I were to be honest, I would say, I would expect Jesus to say it this way, let the greatest among you become the smartest and most knowledgeable. But in a complex world, the simple life of a child is greatness to Jesus. And then as I look at what I valued and what I need to repent of, I saw that I, I would have expected Jesus to say, let the greatest among you become the hardest and the most serious worker. My dad's a farmer from Kansas. We work hard. But no, in a stressed out world, the frolicking life of a child is greatness 
to Jesus. I would have expected it to say, let the greatest among you become the wealthy and the most generous. Trying to make it Christian so I can have money, right? But no, in a materialistic world where people die to be independently wealthy, the relative poverty and the utter dependence of a child is so rich in the sight of Jesus. And so I just want you to know if you're new to the Bible, if you're new to Christianity, if you're trying to figure this thing out, Jesus teaches and lives an upside-down kingdom that doesn't line up with the way of this world. And so coming into this verse and, and really being knocked back by this one word, I had a decision to make. Would I be Presbyterian and read a bunch of books about what kids do? That was a joke. Y'all need to lighten up. Or would I be a Christ follower and actually get around children and watch and repent and turn and become like children? And so God, in my arrogance and my pride, has given me four children, five and under, trying to teach me something. And I'm trying to open my eyes to what He has taught me. This morning, if anything, I'd like to give you this perspective that the children in our lives, whether they're yours or their grandkids or their covenant kids or they're your neighbor's kids or their nieces and nephews, younger brother or younger sisters, younger brothers, wherever you find these little ones, that is God's gift to you, and He is asking you to watch them. He's asking you to value them. And more than he does teach in Matthew 18 that you receive Jesus when you receive a little one, but he's saying more than that, watch them and become like them because I want you to be great in my kingdom. I want you to be fruitful in my kingdom. I want you to be significant and effective. I want the church to spread the glory of the kingdom, but if it's not about me, we're not going to do it. So this utter humility seen in the physical reality of a child's life is beautiful in the sight of God. And so what I, I want to encourage you with is, is to push you down the road and kind of tell you some of the stories that I have seen my children in ways that they have taught me or, or yet that God has taught me through them, these stories on humility. And so I want to both encourage you to see children as, as a lesson from God, but also to kind of help you see what you're looking for. And we'll just get warmed up. Let's just get warmed up. On Saturday mornings, I journal now about my week with my children and what they're teaching me. I have a list of 40 to 50 things that my, te- my children are teaching me about humility. And I'll just give you an example so you kind of get the rhythm of this sermon. Not long ago, one of my favorite nephews, Tucker, walks up to my two-year-old son, Braden. He's probably one at the time, and he punches him right in the gut. And he takes his toy, and he goes and plays with it. And not five minutes later, the two of them are laughing and playing and enjoying one another's presence. Tucker has said he is wrong and sorry, and Braden has forgiven him. And they're in community. You show me, you show me the 32-year-old man about to use his driver on the first hole, and a man punches him in the face, takes his golf club, and within five minutes they're friends again. At a point in my life, I was having a very difficult time forgiving a brother. And on a Saturday morning, Jesus said to me, it's not about you, it's about forgiveness and community and reconciliation. And he taught me that through Braden. Four categories. We are in a series about the kingdom of God. We're in a series where Jeff is encouraging us to see the authority of Christ in our life. 
He's the king, his rule and reign in us and through us. And in this series, he's trying to get us to see that the peace of Christ, this shalom, this reconciliation, this remaking of all things new is our business. We take the peace of Christ that we have at first with the Father through Jesus. And then through Jesus, we have it with one another. And then through Jesus, we have it with ourselves. Our guilty consciences have been dealt with. And then Jesus reorients us with the created order and says, let's get about the business of building the kingdom. To be great in that kingdom, you have to be humble. And to be humble, you have to know God's object lesson for humility. It's little kids. So, Orangewood, category number one, extraordinary trust in precarious situations. Extraordinary trust in precarious situations. I cannot tell you how amazed I am that my children trust me enough to wrestle with me. I mean, just think about this reality. My five, three, and two-year-old, I slammed them on the couch with enough force that if they did not hit the couch, they would break something, and they laugh. That I hold them in the pool far before the time that they can swim, and they just splash and love it, having no idea that the situation around them is precarious. And I see myself, and I see balls dropping around me, and I don't like that. I'm very much a type A person, and we get results, and we get things done. And when things start to go chaotic around me, I freak out. I got to tell you, if we get about kingdom business, things are going to freak out around us. And we just have to have the extraordinary trust of a child who knows that I'm in my dad's hands. And nothing can happen to me that's not for my good and for his glory. That's a lesson that has been taught to me by my children. They are teaching me humility. I'm along for the ride and I'm not the captain of this ship. Secondly, my children have taught me utter dependence. They always need direction, and in their better moments, they appreciate it. But my children have taught me utter dependence. We have this game that we played in our old neighborhood in Lakeland where after dinner, we would ride our bikes or our scooters or we'd push strollers and go around our neighborhood, and we called it the light game. And in our old historic district, there was uh, an old black light in front of each house. And the kids, uh, Maddie and Riley, are old enough to get ahead, and, and they'll, they'll stop at every light and ask me, where do I go next? I'm telling you, every time they know exactly where to go. But this is what they have taught me. I I may have been here before, but I'm not in control, so I'm going to check with my dad. And so often I get into the rhythm of my life and the routine of my life, and I very rarely check in with the Father to find out if we're still on the same page. And yet for us to be great in the kingdom, to build the fame of Christ and to spread his peace, we will have to learn to check all the time with our Father. Just so you know, a 32-year-old once said this, I can't do anything unless I see my father doing it. A 32-year-old said this, I don't do anything unless my dad tells me to do it. A 32-year-old said this, I don't say anything unless my dad tells me to say it. Now you show me a counselor that would listen to that from a 32-year-old man and call that health. (laughs) And I want you to know that every one of those quotes is from the lips of Jesus in the Gospel of John. He didn't do or say anything unless God told him to. That's extraordinary. My children have taught me not only this extraordinary trust and this utter dependence, they have taught me constant communication. I picked Maddie up from her room right over there at 2.30 on Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. And she chats my ear off the entire way home. And I can't get a word in edgewise. 
She just loves to talk to me. I, I know that children are built to talk to their dad. Every one of my four children, at some point between six and eight months, they put their head right here on my shoulder and they put their neck at such an angle that I can't now at this age. And they just look at me. And I, and I love this. Gentry's the last one to have gone through this. She just, ugh. She just waits. And I go, ugh. And then she goes, ugh. And she just waits. I mean, we're communicating. My voice has calmed her down for six or seven months, and now she is starting to get in the conversation. Non-stop communication. My children, I love it. I love how bold their requests are of me. Every time that the man would come and spray our house for bugs, for the weeks that followed, every time I heard my name in a loud tone, I knew that it was Riley telling me to come pick up a bug. Because we've established this rule in our house where I'm the dad and I pick up the bugs when they're dead. And you might find that a little presumptive. I find that humble. I have told my children, this is what your dad does. Ask me to do it. It is not presumptive for us to go to Jesus and say, you have said you'll make all things new. You have said that you will save my neighbor. You have said that you would do this and that and that you restore marriages. It's not presumptive. It's actually humility to say, I can't do it, but you can. Please come and do what you said you would do. Finally, kingdom priorities. Now, my children would never use that word, but this is a category where God has taught me so much through my children. First, my children are not ashamed of the gospel. Whether it be Maddie and Riley out back singing to Gentry, Jesus loves me at the top of their lungs because she's crying. And I look out the back to find out what's going on, and they've put her in the swing, and they've lowered the the safety bar, and they're pushing her, and they're singing as loud as they can that Jesus loves me. And I look just over the fence, and there's some construction workers putting together a screen porch on the house behind me. My first instinct is embarrassment. My kids want to know why we don't do family worship at restaurants. Every meal that we eat together at the house, we talk about what was good about our day and bad, and and we sing, my God is so big, so strong and mighty. And we sing, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. But we don't do it in public. And they just haven't learned yet that you're supposed to keep your Christianity boxed in. They just haven't learned yet that out there in the world, we just want to respect other people. And they just love Jesus. He's the superhero of all superheroes. Why wouldn't we talk about him? And so God has taught me that. My kids have taught me that no job is too small or insignificant. I coached three and four-year-old soccer uh, last year, and it's, it's more like foosball. You pick these kids up. The coaches are allowed to be on the field, and you pick them up and put them wherever you want. So I carry Maddie around and put her in front of the goal, and I'm kicking the ball with her. We're very good. We were very good. And you know what? This one day I couldn't get three players to come on the field and play. They all want to be on the sidelines and cheer for their friends. I don't know at what age it happens that it's all about me and it's not about the team anymore and I ought to be playing and they shouldn't be playing and the role you've given me is not significant enough. The role you've given me is not glorious enough. But in a time in my life when I was trying to decide where God was calling us on a Saturday morning, Jesus said, listen, no role's too insignificant. If I've called you to cheer, cheer. If I've called you to get water, get water. When I tell you to get on the field, kick it as hard as you can. No job is too small. 
Finally, Jeff alluded to this two weeks ago, but my kids, they love to work with their dad. They absolutely love to work with their dad. When I mow the yard, the kids get the plastic lawn equipment out, and they come right outside with me. They love to be in my business. I I abhor, I abhor. Do you see that little spit, Jeff? It's the stage. I see why nobody's seeing it. I I hate Christmas because the toys that my kids get all require assembly. And my kids, I I like to box myself in a room and tell them to stay away because dad's doing something nice for you and I don't want you in my presence messing this thing up. They just love to be with their dad. I'm ashamed to admit that between Christmas and New Year's, this last year I was washing Trisha's car and I walked out of the carport and I put the car in neutral and I tried to push it down the driveway because I had the kids inside with all those plastic toys, all these worldly options, and if they heard the car turn on, they're going to come outside and want to know what's going on. And I don't want them rubbing rocks into Trisha's car. We've done that more than once. And I'm not strong enough. That's the part I'm ashamed about. I wasn't strong enough to get it up the hill and in the backyard. So I had to turn the car on. And yet, not two minutes later, Riley comes out in her bathing suit wanting to be with her dad. And she's saying this, Dad, with all those worldly options in the house, really I want to be about the business of helping you in the family business. And this is why Jesus has said to me, a man full of arrogance and pride and a man just so full of himself, he is saying, look at these, look at these little kids and study them. And when you find yourself out of accord with humility, repent and become more like them. But I want you to know the one who said, let the greatest become like the youngest is Jesus. And ultimately, on a macro level, we are looking at the one who has done exactly that. He is the greatest who has become the youngest. Think about Advent. We just celebrated Advent at Christmas. It's the story of him coming. Did he not, the creator of the universe, come as a baby? Did he not, the sustainer of the universe, come to a feeding trough? Did he not, the greatest in the kingdom of God, become the youngest? And Philippians chapter 2 says that being found in the appearance of man, somehow it snuck up on the king of the universe, but he found himself as a man. And the next thing it says is not he went from the cradle, he went from the cradle to the castle. It says he went from the cradle to the cross. Being found in the appearance of man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That on a very macro level, Christ lived 32 years of getting older and yet younger at the same time. He is our older brother and our youngest brother all at the same time. On a micro level, look at his life. Look at the beauty of his life. Extraordinary trust. He's trusting that when God the Father puts him into death itself, that God's going to raise him back to life. He's trusting that when he leaves heaven to come to earth, that God is going to bring him back and seat him at his right hand with all glory and authority. How trusting is that? Think about dependence. I've already told you. He didn't do anything or say anything unless the Father told him to. The Scriptures tell us over and over he was a man of prayer. He was always getting away from other people and praying. And obviously he's about the Father's agenda. He specifically says, not what I want, but what you want. Why is this dependent, trusting, prayerful, kingdom-oriented man on the cross? I'll tell you why. Because we've been independent and rebellious. 
It's because we've been driven and ambitious. It's because we've been about our kingdoms and not the kingdom of the Father. It's because we're prayerless and He was prayerful. I mean, this is the glorious and beautiful gospel. That the one, the greatest, who became younger then goes and dies for us. That's a beautiful sound. (laughs) Think about this last saying of Jesus on the cross. Luke records it in chapter 23, verse 46. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. It's interesting to me that Jesus says seven things on the cross. They are paying for our sins. They're reclaiming his universe. They're pulling about in some mysterious fashion. He is putting to death death by dying. And when he asks God why he's forsaken him, he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But isn't it interesting that his last saying before dying is, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Listen to the context. Father, you've turned your face from me. Father, your wrath has been burning me for hours. Father, you've allowed and orchestrated this suffering. Father, your wrath will drive me into death and hell itself. Father, I will be the captive of evil for a time. Yet in this short and simple childlike sentence, I am communicating to you that I trust you. And your will be done and not mine. Into your hands I commit my spirit. I have two more pages, but for the sake of time, this seems like a very appropriate time to stop. And so I will. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, we prayed that we would see you. I thank you that I have. I've prayed that I would love you. By your spirit, I do. I have prayed that I would become like you, and I hope that I will. Lord Jesus, I just pray that you would make me great and young in your kingdom. And Jesus, I just pray that you would be maximized and I would be minimized, that you would become great and I would become small, that you would be the big deal of my life instead of me. Oh, Jesus, I need your work. I need it desperately. I pray that you would come. Amen.